Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become greedier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest today is Colonel Leon Ellis. Colonel Lee Ellis, on November 7, 1967, was shot down during one of his combat missions, captured and held as a prisoner of war for more than five years. He was repatriated in March 1973, and he continued to fly until he retired from the United States Air Force in 1990, after 25 years of service. Colonel Ellis has authored or co-authored three books and two workbooks on leadership and career development. His latest book is entitled Engage with Honor, Building a Culture of Courageous Accountability. His last award-winning book, Leading with Honor, Leadership Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton has won Book of the Year awards and was selected in 2013 for the United States Air Force Chief of Staff Professional Reading List. Colonel Lee Ellis, welcome to Blue Grid. Well, thank you very much. So glad to be with you today. Awesome. Tell us about your career. It's a very interesting and diverse one. You know, I was thinking about that this week. I uh, had two major goals as a young person. I wanted to play college football, preferably at the University of Georgia. And I wanted to fly airplanes. I was 155 pounds my senior year, and I wasn't the fastest guy on the team. So playing college ball was out of the question, wasn't an option. But my size was just right to be a fighter pilot. So that worked out. I passed the physical and was in RTC. And three days after I graduated college, I was in flight school. And 53 weeks later, I was assigned to the 4th Phantom fighter bomber. And the order said, Pipeline Southeast Asia which meant as quick as they could get us combat trained, we would be headed west out across the Pacific to the war in Vietnam. I was very fortunate in that I knew what I wanted to do, had a passion for it. I had the skill for it. Uh, my values were very closely aligned with the military. In every way you can think of it, I was pretty well suited for what I wanted to do and was going to be doing. And I think that made a big difference when things turned south, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And and uh, let's uh, let's actually talk about your story of your capture. So this is November, nineteen sixty seven. Yes. Tell me what happened. I was on my fifty third combat mission over North Vietnam. I had others over South Vietnam flying close air support for the Army and the Marine Corps, and some missions over Laos, flying interdiction missions on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, bombing bridges and truck crossings, and all that. But the 53 over North Vietnam were obviously more exciting because you're over enemy territory there. And on the 7th of November, we were getting shot at pretty heavily, attacking this target. And right after the bombs came off, the airplane blew into several pieces. At the time, we were sure it was a AAA, the anti-aircraft artillery that was hitting us. In retrospect, we were probably the first of several airplanes over the next six or eight weeks 
that were blown out of their sky by bad fuses on the bombs. It didn't really matter. My airplane blew up over enemy territory, and all I knew was that I was well-trained and amazingly calm, recognizing the decisions I had to make to eject from the airplane. That all was pretty automatic once I pulled the handle. And then the next thing I know, I'm in the parachute coming down, and there's a lot of screaming and shooting on the ground, a lot of gunners down there, the militia, gun commanders yelling orders about firing, shooting at our wingman, and the misty fact, the Ford Air Controller we were working with that day. Amidst all that, I was pretty calm. I was thinking specifically about one thing, and that was to evade capture, because this is like your worst nightmare, to be jumping out into the enemy territory. So... I tried to slip my parachute a little bit. That didn't work. Then I did my parachute landing, and they surrounded me within probably 90 seconds. I tried to evade, but there just wasn't any way I could do that, and I tried to scare them off, and there wasn't any way I could do that. In fact, they probably should have shot me because I did fire around a tracer over their head to scare them away. There were probably 10 or 15 of these militia guys. Yeah, in your book, you write about being surprised they didn't shoot you, and you always wondered Yeah, you should have been killed. Yeah. Yeah, maybe they were in shock, too, or maybe they were just cool and well-trained. They had been told to try to capture us alive. They had a pointy talkie there. One of the guys pulled out of his pocket, and it's a little comic book about, oh, four inches tall, maybe six inches wide, folded in half, and he unfolded it. It had pictures of a American pilot with his hands over his head on one side with his helmet on and all, and on the other side, it had phonetics. And he was reading the phonetics from Vietnamese to English. And he was saying, hand jump, hand jump, <laughs> surrender, no die, surrender, no die. And I figured that was pretty good advice. I better follow that advice. <laughs> yeah. So they pounced on me. And probably the scariest thing that happened that day was when they couldn't figure out how to get all my survival vests and G-suit and all this stuff on. And they didn't seem to know what to do with zippers. So. They just yanked out knives and started cutting all that off of me, and that was kind of scary. And finally, they got me down, took my boots off, and there I was in my jockey shorts. And so this proud fighter pilot that's so cool is now in the hands of the enemy and very vulnerable. And that's when the fear hit. I was terrified. I was in shock, no question about it, not knowing what was going to happen. They kind of had to figure out themselves a little bit, too. So we took me a couple hundred yards away to a hamlet or a small village and got on the landline and I could hear them yelling on the landline trying to figure out what to do with me. And I guess, you know, it was a minute by minute thing right then. I was not sure what was going to happen to me and I was hanging on. I said, well, they haven't killed me yet. So maybe I'm going to be a POW. And then an hour later, I was still alive and maybe I'm going to make it through this. And it was just kind of one step at a time hanging on to see what was going to happen next in that experience. How long was it before you interacted with the first American airman or American troop? Yeah, well, my teammate in the F-4, actually, we had pilots in the back seat then at that time. For the first couple of years, they had the F-4. And so I was right out of flight school and I was a backseater as a first lieutenant. I just turned 24 years old a few weeks prior to that. My teammate, a front seater aircraft commander, was Captain Ken Fisher. And so they moved me to another village or area or somewhere. I was blindfolded, my hands were tied and barefooted, and they did give me my flight suit back. They put me in an underground bunker, and it wasn't very deep, and it was very shallow. You couldn't stand up in it, but it was like a bomb shelter. 
and I was blindfolded and my hands were tied. And I heard this person heavy breathing and I didn't know it at the time, but Ken had been a collegiate wrestler and his nose had been broken a couple of times. So it was him breathing, but I heard this person breathing and I said, is that you, Ken? And he said, yeah, are you okay? And I said, yeah. I said, are you? And he said, yeah. And so it was in there only about a minute or two and they came in and took me out and I didn't see him for two weeks. They moved me to another hamlet and en route, uh, they had a rope around my neck and they kind of would lead me with that rope. And my, I was blindfolded, my hands were tied, walking barefoot. And they took me through a village and we got to the back of this little village, hamlet, and uh, there was a ditch I could see in the, beneath my blindfold, I could see a few feet in front of me. And I saw this ditch, and I had a flashback to stories about the Korean War where they would take prisoners out behind the village to the drainage ditch and shoot them, and they would fall in and cover them up. So I thought that was what was going to happen to me. I just, you know, you make assumptions sometimes and are very wrong. Well, as it turned out, I was so glad I was wrong, but I didn't know what to do. And so the only thing I could think to do was to try to seek mercy so i turned around and to confront them in that having to shoot me face on so i turned around and to face the guys with the guns so when i did they all got really excited and they were yelling and screaming and they grabbed me and spun me back around to face the ditch and this is the moment that you described for some reason you always had a phobia of being hit from behind Yeah, yeah, I did. It was like being hit from behind and shot from behind. And I just didn't want to go out that way. And I was hoping that they wouldn't have the guts to shoot me face on too, you Mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. So I spun back around again. And that's when they started hitting me and spun me around. And of course, they're screaming, probably cussing in their language. And this time when they spun me around, one of them kicked me in the butt. And I got off balance. And so there was two alternatives. One was fall in the ditch. And the other one was try to do a flat foot jump over it. And that's what I did. The ditch was only about two or three feet wide. And I jumped over it and landed on the other side. And when I did, they started giggling and laughing. And they jumped over the ditch and started leading me across the rice field to the next village. So uh, <laughs> that was probably one of the more exciting experiences I had during my time there. So the first two weeks, I was alone with the guards and went through riots where the local populace tried to kill me. I experienced grace and mercy, you might say, in that the guy who was put in charge of my group squad to take me north was a good soldier, and he was a good man. He wouldn't let them beat up on me. I was one of the few guys that their guards actually protected, so he wouldn't let them beat up on me. And... He and his guards kind of took some blows a couple of times to keep the people from attacking me. Mm -hmm. So it was amazing to have that experience. I thought, well, maybe he's a friendly, you know, maybe he's going to help me get away. He's Mm -hmm. helping me right now. Maybe he's going to help me get away. So, you know, there's all this stuff going on in your mind and trying to figure out, well, can I escape? And if I escape, what will I do? And there's a lot of that going on all the time. And so eventually you were placed in what you named as a Hanoi Hilton. Yeah, the Hanoi Hilton was a French prison. It was really a Bastille prison. It occupied an entire block in downtown Hanoi. It's still, well, part of it's still there. But the French built that in the 1890s, and the walls were 15 feet high and five feet thick, and there were machine guns at the corners. It's almost a whole block downtown. It was called Maison Centrale. It was the city jail in the old days. A lot of American prisoners were there. We probably had 60 or 70 there when I got there. But it was 
kind of maximum security situation, and we're not allowed to communicate with any other cell. They wanted to isolate us because if you can isolate somebody, they're much easier to break. You struggle mentally if you're alone than if you got mutual support. If you got teammates, it's a whole lot easier to go through any difficult situation. So when I got there, I was put in a cell that was six and a half feet by seven feet, which is about the size of a bathroom and an old gas station, I guess you'd say, or a closet. And fortunately, I had three other roommates, cellmates, and we had no walls touching any other walls. It was maximum security. So it was going to be a rough adjustment. We got out about three times a day normally, four times some days. In the morning, we got to empty our bucket. We didn't have a bathroom, of course. We had a bucket, a three-gallon bucket, and thank goodness it had a lid. But that served the four of us, and we could about make it till the next morning. And one of us would go down the hall and empty it into the sewer. And that was our first opportunity to be outside and see what was going on and see the other cells and try to grunt or make noise or some way let people know we're here. And if we ever got out more than one of us out of the cell at a time, we would try to distract the turnkey and guard and whisper or pass a note. Once we eventually we were able to steal a pencil and the toilet paper we had was like heavy-duty brown paper towels. And we'd take off a little piece and write a note on it and slip it under somebody's door, put our names on it and that sort of thing. So it was a, a strange environment. If you got caught communicating or doing anything against their rules, you could be beaten, tortured, isolated in solitary confinement. So the penalties were pretty strong. But we still had to communicate and we had to stay connected. So it was really a cat and mouse game. It's almost like kids, except the stakes were very high. So you had to be sneaky, and I guess I'm athletic and small, 155 pounds, and I'm just good at, I had good ears, good eyes, and good at figuring out risk versus reward. And so I was able to do a lot of things in that environment and get away with them. I I had a lot of confidence in my ability to be sneaky and beat them in that game, and that was actually a good skill up there. Yeah. Do you mind if uh, I ask you to read a paragraph from your book, Leading with Honor? I think it describes so well just your routines and what your day would look like, at least just a snapshot of one of the days. Okay. You're talking about on page 34? Mm-hmm. Okay. Normally, the V let us out of our tiny cell only 15 minutes a day, five or six days a week, but never on Sunday because that was their day off. We were allowed to spend 10 minutes in the wash house bathing and washing clothes and about two and a half minutes retrieving each of our two daily meals from the hallway outside our cell. About once a week, we're allowed to shave or rather torment our faces with a 1960-0 blade that had been used previously by 10 or 20 other scruffy POWs. Except for a one-hour siesta after lunch, we were not allowed to lie down or sleep during the day. Some of the men became adept at sleeping while seated, leaning against the wall. For the first two years, the feeling of hunger never left us. Food was the most popular topic of conversation, especially when it was cold and our bodies needed more calories just to stay warm. When the sun went down, the rats came out in droves. You could see them scurrying back and forth along walls and up and down tree limbs, not unlike columns of ants. One night, when I was sleeping on the floor, An eight-inch rat, they typically were six to eight inches in length, not including the tail. The rat came through a drainage vent and became trapped between my mosquito net and the cell wall. 
As it wildly thrashed about, I felt as if I were battling a medium-sized cat. I'm not sure which one of us was more scared. My personal rat experience was far from the worst in the camps, though. One POW who had been severely injured during ejection from his aircraft awoke in the middle of the night to find rats chewing on his mangled, infected leg. He fought them off, but they came back. There was always an ongoing rat skirmish of some sort. Thank you for reading this. Does it bring back the experiences of being there on a daily basis? Yeah. You know, it's been a long time. It's been 45 years plus. That was 51 years ago this November or December. And so now I've had such a good life since then. It's more like a summer camp experience, I guess you'd say. Or maybe it's like, did that really happen to me, you know? I know that it did, and I have a very accurate memory of it. But it's just part of my life, and I think that eventually, when you get away from painful things long enough in the rearview mirror, you can put them in perspective, and I survived that. I mean, I came home, and I'll be 75 years old next week, and I'm pretty athletic and working and running and playing basketball with my grandson. So, you know, it's like somehow the body... The mind and the body is so much more resilient than we think it is. We, have, we can do so much more than we give ourselves credit for. In your book, you talk about purpose and commitment to that purpose and how that held you steady through the difficult times. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I think I had pretty strong spiritual faith. I was raised in a Christian home, and I feel like I had a good foundation of faith. And so I believe that God had a uh, kind of like Ronald Reagan, you know, when they tried to assassinate him and it missed his heart by a quarter inch. He said, well, I guess uh, there's something else I'm supposed to do. God's not ready for me to fold up yet. And I think that's, uh, of course, I was before Ronald Reagan's time but uh, as being president. But I just felt like I had a purpose and mission and there were other things that I needed to do. And part of it was probably the most important thing I had to do was my duty. You know, doing your duty will get you through a lot of things. And like I'm writing a book right now and, you know, writing a book is hard for anybody, anybody. And anybody who's written a book will tell you, you just have to put your butt in a chair and write and mm -hmm. and be resilient about it. And it's your duty when you're committed to write a book, it's your duty. So I think that was a big part of my mission and purpose was to be a good soldier and do my duty and one of my friends who was there eight years, he was POW number five, Colonel Carlisle Harris, Smitty Harris. I think he just turned 90, 89 or 90, oh. still playing golf, talking about resilience. Yeah. He was there eight years, but he told me one time, I said, Smitty, when you were out at that camp, uh, there was one that uh, um, uh, there was really a hard camp. And I said, how did you guys do it? Because the food was terrible and there was torture going on all the time. And. I said, how did you do it? And he said, well, there were a lot of things going, but one of them was competition. We just competed. We were all very competitive, you know, and if one guy could stand the torture for a day, then somebody else is going to try to make it a day and a half, and somebody else is going to try to make it two days. Very he said, we just, we don't like to lose, you know, we're very competitive. And so I think that's part of it, too. We don't like to lose. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it brings a, a thought to mind. My last interview was with Dr. Gary Percival, and he's a seer psychologist in the Air Force. 
So he worked with a lot of POWs and he talks about one of the elements of resiliency being that resilience is contagious. Yeah. So I wonder, you know, if that's this kind of competition, this knowing that in 10 other people or 100 other people were able to get through this and they did it better than I also kind of gives birth to, to, to more resilience in, in the environment and other people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. From a study of emotional intelligence, you know that emotions are contagious. Yeah. We know that attitudes are kind of contagious. And when, if everybody else is saying, we're going to handle this, then there is a kind of a group think that takes place. And if the group think is, we can handle this, then it lifts everybody up. And certainly our leaders, you know, leadership there made a huge difference for us. We always knew who the senior ranking officer was. And most of the time, they did a great job. You know, they suffered the most. They were tortured the most. And they set an example for us. And we wanted to be like them. We wanted to live up to what their standard was. So that was that was very important, I think, for us was to know that the other guys are trying their best. Mm-hmm. Now, it's true that people have different capabilities, but I think each one of us wanted to get better and to get tougher. I know I certainly did. My senior ranking officer, after we fired the original one, we had one of the few cases where we actually mutinied against the senior ranking officer because he was collaborating. And so the number two guy took over, which was Captain Ken Fisher, my front seater. And he was so tough. I wanted to be like him. You know, he was intellectually solid, physically very tough. He'd been a champion wrestler in high school and college. But his integrity and character was so strong and his resistance was so strong. And uh, I knew I didn't measure up to him and I wanted to be like him. So I, I worked to grow to be more like him. So that was an important part for me. Mm-hmm. Tell me about this concept of losing your dignity. You may have experienced feeling that your dignity has been stripped away from you, or maybe you observed that other people felt their dignity has been stripped away. What was that experience like? Well, I think after being tortured and giving in, uh, you know, we want to win. We want to compete and win. But more than that, we wanted to live up to our honor and dignity as military guys, as representatives of the United States government, and as people who wore our uniforms. And so when I was tortured and eventually gave in to fill out a three-page biography, because I'd given only name, rank, service, number, date of birth, and so I finally saw I couldn't win this battle. And so I, and I was losing faster and faster and uh, not in a good shape. So I agreed to go ahead and fill out that three-page biography. But I wasn't going to give them what they wanted. You know, I was still in the game. My head, my brain, and my spirit was still resisting. So I filled it out. But Somewhere in there before, after I told him I would do it, and maybe after I had, I remember I was laying on the filthy interrogation room floor in handcuffs and leg irons, and I don't remember if I was blindfolded or not, but I remember just laying there crying because I felt so much shame that I was so weak that I couldn't beat him, that I was the lowest scum that had ever worn the uniform because uh, I, had, I had to give in. But the truth was, they could make anybody give in. They could make anybody in that camp do something, and they wouldn't let you die. And so, as I came back to my cell, and I found out that Captain Fisher and Lieutenant Warner 
had gone through the same thing. We ended up in the same place. We were gone different lengths of time. Fisher was tougher, but we all ended up in the same place. And then we found out that other guys had gone through this. In fact, everybody had. Uh, that what we had done was same that everybody else had done. And so that made us feel much better about ourselves and our dignity that we were we were still part of the team. Uh, I was doubtful that I was ever going to be on the team again after having given in, even though, like I say, everything I put on that three-page biography was lies and BS, except my father's first and last name and everything else was... I, I did put down that I was an F-4 Phantom pilot because they already knew that. Uh, they had that information from my shoot down because they had my checklist and all that kind of stuff. So that was an experience. And, and similar again, I went through torture again later when they wanted me to make a recording for the camp radio. Every cell had a speaker in it and we had an intercom. And so they would play propaganda three times a day and used a lot of American anti-war people for it. But they also would torture POWs to read either the news or sometimes to make a statement, to read a statement. And I didn't have to do a statement. They wanted me to read their version of the news, uh, kind of like uh, the daily news, I guess you'd say. So that was, uh, again, hard, but I was a little bit wiser at that time. And it was, it was painful and shameful because I wish I could have been tougher, but that's just... You know, I knew that I could bounce back and I wasn't giving up to them. And I think that knowing that my teammates knew where I was and that I was doing my best and that we we're going to bounce back and keep fighting. I think that helped me up. And probably the most important thing, if you said, what was the secret to POW resilience and so on? I think we had really good training. We were somewhat screened. If you're put in those kind of situations, you've been screened. We had great leadership, but most of all, we had teamwork. If I'd have been alone, oh my gosh, I just can't imagine having been alone. And when I talk to people about life and situations, I say, you do not want to do life alone. Mm -hmm. And you don't, when you're in a tough place, you better have some friends around you. You better reach out. You better get connected, man. You got to get connected. And in the camps, we would risk our lives to reach out to guys who were in solitary confinement or two guys we know had been tortured, and just to get to them and say, man, we're proud of you. Hang in there. You know, We're going to go home someday. You're a good man. Wow, way to go. Those kind of things. To let them know that we were still a team and they were part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to ask you, what would you say was the darkest moment for you while you were in captivity? Mm. Oh, wow. Um, well, I think when I was tortured, that was my first time. That was my darkest moment. Uh, oh, I felt so bad. I felt so bad. Uh, I just didn't think I could ever go home and face anybody, you know, that I was so weak. Uh, I was so ashamed of my performance. So that was probably the darkest moment. And then I guess there were just that first two weeks going to Hanoi. There were a couple of times when I was alone and having no idea where I was going and what was going to happen. That was pretty tough. Hmm. So during the daily struggle and just your regular difficulties that you had to face, what were the specific strategies or routines or methods that you used to stay sane? Well, 
when I was in, in pain and hurting, I just tried to figure out how to get through till the next hour or the next day. I think that's the main thing is just hanging in there, expecting that things will change and get better. Something will, something will have to be different. And I guess that's when I gave up that time and been tortured. Uh, I couldn't see anything different coming up. But most of the time, you know, I could see, you know, the mental things were more of it's just a mental battle of me and not a physical battle of being tortured. Uh, I would uh, come up with ways to kill the time and get my mind distracted and just believe that I just got to hang on until things get better here and they will get better. And, and that's usually that's the truth. They do get better. Uh, I would play mental games. I would do poems. I would remember people. One time I had a, uh, kind of a nightmare from my eighth grade science class that my teacher was taking up homework and I hadn't done mine. And I remember she said to me, my real name is Leon. I go by Lee, but my real name is Leon. She said, Leon, you could be such a good student if you would just do your homework. And I felt very much ashamed, I guess, a lot of that, that dignity battle that was going on at camps because everything they did was to undermine your dignity. Mm-hmm. And so the next day, kind of my way of fighting back or doing something about it, I guess. I thought, okay, when I go back to school, I will study and do my homework. But I spent two or three days, and I remembered everybody in my eighth grade science class and which seat they sat in, in which desk they sat in in the class. So that kept me busy, you know, kept me mentally busy. Uh, Sometimes I'd work math problems. One time, just for something to do and, you know, years, starting to go in my second year, I got into a farming project, and I started out with 40 acres, and I worked on that farm 12 hours a day, almost every day, for about two months. And some days I work on it so hard that I get a headache. I was doing the math of figuring out fences and how much barbed wire it would take and how many fence poles and how much I could fence in and what it would cost and how many animals I could put in there and how much corn I could grow over here and just all these problems I was working did you ever have a farm afterwards? Yeah, I did. Oh, you did. <laughs> you you would you, you can tell how crazy I was when I came home because we I came home met my wife a year later. I was single when I was captured. We got married uh, in fall of seventy four. Then in seventy seven seventy eight, we were transferred away from San Antonio back. And anyway, we went back, and so I convinced her we should buy this farm, sixty four acre farm of about twenty five miles from the base and we had three kids expecting the fourth we lived in this old german farmhouse and i would come home from work in the afternoon and get on my tractor and go farm until 10 11 o'clock at night and get up and go to work the next morning you know she tried to tell me that wasn't a good idea but i didn't listen and she didn't push back hard enough uh, later she learned to put her foot down in a good way because uh it was a little crazy but <laughs> i got it out of my system and i enjoyed it but yeah. uh i moved on from it Good. Um, tell me about the role of humor in your book, Leading with Honor. You kind of mention this again and again, and it's quite actually peppered with, with uh, jokes, uh, despite all the, the terrible conditions that you were living in. Mm-hmm. Tell me the yeah. role humor plays in resilience. Oh, it's absolutely essential. Uh, you know, we it was so serious that we didn't know what they, they were telling us, and we've been there about two or three months and over that camp radio 
every day they were telling us we were going to be tried as war criminals. And that's a pretty serious thing. And we might not ever go home. So that was playing heavily on our minds. And it was about that time, somewhere between two and three months, that one evening we were getting ready to uh, call it a day. We, they rang a gong. They beat on this old uh, howitzer-type uh, artillery empty shell out there. That was a gong. They beat on to tell us to go to bed. And cellmate and I, Jim Warner and I, were getting ready and kind of getting ready to bed down, I guess you'd say. And he said something, and I could tell he was trolling uh, the guy in our cell that was collaborating. And he was trolling him, and Jim was a brilliant guy, and I saw it what he was doing. And I looked over at Jim, and I started smiling at him. And I don't remember when I'd smiled. And I said, Jim, you're trolling, aren't you? He looked over at me and winked and had a big grin on his face. And we started a little bit of a laugh and then a harder laugh. And pretty soon we were crying. We were laughing so hard. And that was the first time. It had been almost three months since we had laughed. Mm -hmm. And I think after that, we realized we had to hunt for every opportunity to laugh because it really does uh, relieve stress and helps you break the tension of tough situations. In my consulting work, I'm a leadership consultant. Uh, one of my big clients for many years is the large hospital system. And so one time I spent some time in the ER, and as they, you know, when they bring people in that are shot, cut, heart attacks, you know, it's just one after the other. And what I saw was the nurses and doctors and all the people that work in the ER, they have a vicious sense of humor. And they're pulling each other's chain and they're giggling and, and you know, pulling stuff, stunts on each other all the time. And I thought, okay, I get it. When you live around this all day long, this terrible trauma all day long, you have to have a way to yeah, deal with that. Yeah. And humor is a good way. Yeah, I agree. In your writing, you talk about Commander Stockdale. You describe him as an extraordinary athlete and who was also an intellectual from Stanford. And I'm quoting you, describe him as he had a transcendent appreciation for suffering. And you use the word stoic to describe him. Can you talk to me about suffering and stoicism? Yeah. You know, Stockdale was a real intellectual and a stoic. And he spent, like, so Denton and Stockdale and Reisner all spent, our three senior leaders spent, more than four years in solitary confinement oh. and were tortured often. Stockdale was awarded the Medal of Honor for his heroic resistance after the war. And Stockdale did a lot of reading into a lot of areas. And in one of his writings, he talks about Solzhenitsyn's book. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's the one from the Gulag Archipelago. Mm -hmm. And yeah. how Solzhenitsyn was going through kind of what we went through. And one day he was dealing with himself and Solzhenitsyn said, basically, thank God, prison, prison, thank you for this blessing. Because the prison, the suffering that he was going through made him a better man. And I guess the thing I've come to realize is you don't become a world-class athlete without suffering. You think about somebody's Olympic gold medal swimmer. Every day, five or six hours swimming in the pool for years and years, or whatever you know, a pianist that sits at that piano and plays for hours and hours to become a world-class performer. So 
I think that's true about most anything. You know, I'm writing this book. I mean, I put in a lot of hours. I have to get a stick and beat myself to sit down here because I'm an active mover. I don't sit still very long. And I just have to put myself back in the seat and keep writing and keep writing. It's kind of like uh, coming around the the turn at the Kentucky Derby. The, the jockeys get the whips out. And I think that's part of the suffering that has to take place to achieve our goals sometimes or to get through something. But the beautiful thing is that when we come out the other side, we're better people. We don't learn much from prosperity. We learn a lot in suffering. At our 40th anniversary of the POWs at our reunion, which was happened to be in San Antonio about four or five years ago now, we were sitting around the table, a bunch of us, one evening and chatting. And there's a guy who's been a POW eight years, one six and a half, another one six, uh, a couple of us five and a half sitting around the table. And one of the guys said, you know, I would never volunteer to be a POW, but I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah. And that's a, that's an, that's an amazing statement. Yeah. And everybody at the table said, that's the way I feel about it too. We would never volunteer, but we wouldn't change a thing because our lives have been so much better through that suffering. We didn't want to suffer. We didn't volunteer to suffer. We would never sign up for suffering. But when you're in it, you have to realize that if I do my duty, if I'm true to myself and I don't compromise what I believe in and I do the right thing, I will come out the other side and things will be better. And I have to, you have to believe that because it's true. Yeah. Tell me what was it like for you to see your family for the first time after captivity? Oh, it was wonderful. You know, I was single. My mom and dad had gone through so much, and they'd done such a great job of staying positive. You can imagine the fears and the mm, yeah. depression that might have been upon them, but they stayed busy. They got involved with the National League of POWMI families, and that was a big help. My mom's the speaker of the crowd, so she was a school teacher, so she was on the speaking circuit at the local rotaries, ginning up support for our cause and the league and all that sort of thing. It made a big difference. But to be with them was very exciting, kind of a relief being home. I was relieved as much for them as I was probably more so because I knew what was happening to me. They didn't. And for me to be there, be alert and mentally solid. You know, we came home. We had time to decompress. Last two years, they'd stopped the torture pretty much because of the pressure from the American people and Ho Chi Minh dying and them getting new leadership. So we had two years to decompress and get ready to go home. And that made all the difference in the world. So we came home in really pretty good mental shape. And for them to be able to see that I was okay, going to be okay. And I went home and they didn't have much money or anything. You know, my parents, are just regular folks. And so I spent some of the money that had accumulated in the bank while I was gone. I took a good chunk of it and just remodeled their house for them. And spent time with them for about two or three months while that was going on and kind of managed that and worked with them and spent time with them. I'd stay home about three or four days, and then I'd take off and go somewhere for three or four days. <laughs> so it worked out well. The one disappointment I had, and I think anybody who deploys and is away from their family for a while, you start remembering them as being perfect. I remembered only the good of them. 
And when I came home and they actually weren't perfect, that was a little disappointing. <laughs> disappointing. <laughs> it's like, really? Really? I thought you were perfect. How can you see it that way? Yeah. So I just had to learn that, you know, uh, they're mom and dad and I love them and uh, they're, they're good enough. They're just right. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to go back to one thing we touched on earlier. After the agreements were signed, we were out in open compound. That's where I, John McCain was captured 11 days before me. And when they regrouped us by shoot-down date, because they were going to release us by shoot-down date or capture dates and release us in groups. So I came out with a group that was captured in the fall of 67 and winter, early spring of 68. And McCain was in that group. So we're in the same camp together in an open compound. But they started giving us some books. This is after the agreement was signed in Paris. And we're, we know we're going to go home. We're just waiting for our turn because we're going home in groups every couple of weeks or so. And they gave us some books to read. And they gave one book to each cell. And one of the first books they gave my cell was Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which is such a powerful book. It was written about his experience during the Holocaust as a concentration camp survivor. And he was a psychiatrist out of Vienna. So he had an excellent perspective on this whole experience of the Holocaust. And he talked about man's will to meaning. And he said, if a person has meaning, they can survive most anything if they have a purpose. Yeah. And life has meaning for them. They could probably make it through most anything. Otherwise, yeah. in that situation, they might sit down and die. Interesting thing was we came home and a friend of mine is a psychiatrist, a high school, college friend. And we were at a party and he said, you know, he was talking to his aunt. He said, you know, Victor Frankl is going to be at the University of Georgia next month. And so my ears perked up and I said, really? And I told him about reading Frankl's book, sitting in the jail just before we came home. And he said, would you like to meet him? And I said, sure. And he says, well, Edith Weisskopf is hosting, and she's a friend of mine, and I'll just get her to arrange it. So I actually spent 20 minutes with Viktor Frankl. How amazing. I, um, <laughs> I'm a big fan, and I recommend this book to a lot of my patients. It's one of my yeah. favorite books as well. Um, and I feel like when I reread it every time, I just discover something new. That I, I try to reread it about every five years. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful book and wonderful recommendations for, for all listeners, for all my patients, certainly I recommend. So since we touched on Senator McCain, can you talk a little bit about your memories of him, what's important for, for the audience to know? Yeah, you know, he was probably the most seriously injured and wounded. He had both injuries from his ejection and wounds from his capture because they hit him in the head with a but rifle stock, and he was even bayoneted, I think, in the leg. So he had two broken arms, a broken leg, and a hematoma on the other leg, and a couple of gashes. And so he was uh, very, very bad shape. And probably had they not found out that his father was the admiral in charge of the Pacific, that he was important, you know, an important hostage for them, they kept him alive because he had more trading value than any of the rest of us when you look at the world the way they would be looking at it. So they kind of kept him alive, and they put him with a couple of guys that could look after him and kind of nurse him back to health. He was only there a few months, and they offered him the opportunity to be released early. In fact, they didn't offer him the opportunity. They told him he was going to go home and be released, and it was a propaganda stunt. They were going to release him and two other guys. And McCain basically said no. And then he said, 
well, he said, I'll think about it. And so he came back the next day and said, no, I'm saying here, I'll go home when it's my turn. Because our rule was we go home in order of capture, sick and wounded first, and then in order of capture. Now, the reality was he was badly enough wounded that he could have come home and we would have all felt good about it. But he, he felt like he shouldn't have any special privileges. And so he stayed there another five years. So, and for that, he was beaten, tortured, and put in solitary confinement for another year. Incredible. Just give me, gives me chills. So the guy has a lot, yeah. a lot of courage, a lot of duty and honor uh, at stake there, and he came through with flying colors. So I think we all really respect him for that. Not everybody agrees with him on everything, but we all respect his performance as a POW as being very courageous, set a great example, and we are proud of him for that. Mm. When did you realize that you would be sharing the message of your own grit and your philosophy on leadership with others? And I guess at, at some point you decided you're going to be writing a book. Walk me through how did that happen? What drove that decision? Yeah. Okay. Well, people had been asking me, because I've been a consultant, trainer, and I've done a little bit of speaking, not much, but other than just with my training. And people would say, well, when are you going to do a book? When are you going to do a book? And I don't know, you know. And so in 2008 or nine, I said, okay, I'm going to do a book. I will do like an autobiography, but I'm going to tell a lot of other people's stories, mainly, you know, Reisner and Denton and Stockdale and all those guys. Because I certainly, I was the youngest guy in the camp usually, or one of the four or five youngest out of three or 400. And junior ranking, one of the lowest ranking guys in the camp. So I had no great leadership experience myself. I experienced great leadership from others. But I wrote this book and probably uh, got about two-thirds, three-fourths through it. And I gave it to two unknown authors, one of whom is actually fairly famous, related to Black Hawk Down. Mm -hmm. And both guys gave me the same feedback. They said, well, you got some good stories, but what's different about your book than another POW's book? And, of course, feedback like that always stings a little bit, but I didn't let it sting long, and I thought it through, and I said, well, you know, those guys are right. They've done me a favor. And I said, what's different about me? And I said, well, I've been a leadership consultant for more than 10 years at that time, and I've been involved in leadership for more than 20 years. And so I need to write this book on the leadership lessons from the Hanoi Hilton. And so that's what I stopped and pivoted and used some of what I'd already written and didn't use some of it, but I used some of it. But I, I came up with a, a way to structure the book so there would be 14 lessons, the first six for leading yourself, the next eight are leading others, and every chapter has a POW story and then a clear transition. Okay, here's the lesson, and then here's how that lesson applies in today's workplace, and then coaching at the end. And I, so every chapter is that same format. So that was just... Uh, a discipline that I did, and uh, I had the experience and knowledge to do it and felt good about it, and it's turned out well. Yeah, it, it, it did. And now you're writing another book, and you still continue to develop grit by, by writing that book, as, as you discussed <laughs> <Right>. earlier. <laughs> yes, that's how I beat up on myself. But I guess I feel like there's a message that people need to... My purpose in life really is so much about helping people grow to be all they can be. So... In my books, I'm really trying to help people see things the way the world works, understand themselves, 
and then be able to grow into being a more effective person so we can have a better world and they can be a better leader or a better teammate or a better husband or wife or friend or whatever. That's kind of my mission. And so uh, that's why I write books. Yeah. And do you at times still struggle with uh, the aftermath of being a captive? Yes and no. Not really, but you know, as you get older, you probably get a little more, most people get a little more emotional. I, I, as a POW, uh, most all of us, I would say, we shut down our emotions. By nature and by culture, most of us in the military are not very emotional other than anger. And we use that in a good way a lot of times when you go to war. And then in wartime, after I lost two of my old close buddies within the first two or three months, there were great guys, great pilots, great men. And I remember just stopping in my grieving and said, look, you know, you got a water fight. You can grieve later. Shut it down and move on. And so that's what I did. And then as the POW, all that stuff going on, I realized I couldn't get too far up. I didn't want to be too optimistic and I didn't want to get depressed. So again, a good excuse to just level out. I don't get up. I don't get down. I'm just, it is what it is. And so when we came home, actually, when they read the agreement to us and told us we were going to go home, we just looked at each other and said, okay. And that was two reasons. One is we were emotionally, that was easy. Number two, we didn't want to give them a photo op of us jumping up and down cheering. So we just went back to our cells and, and quietly talked about it and said, okay, we'll see. They'll try to probably screw it up before we get home. They'll probably try to delay it or something, but uh, we'll see and what happens. And so we just walked through that experience. So it took me many, many years to kind of peel away a lot of the layers of, you could say, bondage or the chains, emotional chains that allowed me to feel like a normal human being should be able to feel a range of emotions. And so that's been a, a healing process over the years. And a lot of it got accelerated probably, oh, 10 or 15, maybe 15 years ago when I went to a retreat and had a couple of experiences that uh, allowed me to reconnect. And movies are really good for this, by the way, especially for men. We, uh, you know, we don't show emotions a lot of times, but if I watch a movie by myself, I can have some tears sometimes. I remember one of my biggest emotional breakthroughs was I was at this men's retreat and they showed a clip from Gladiator. At the very end, when Maximus fights uh, Commodus or whatever his name is, and they die and they're laying in the arena, and Drusilla comes up and said, this man was a, a Roman soldier. Honor him. And it was just, it was just very emotional because I had never grieved the loss of my buddies. And so that was very freeing and, uh, and that kind of opened the door for more emotions to, to grieve. I think you have to grieve and most of us who just put that grieving in the room and locked it up and that's not healthy either. So learning to grieve and deal with emotions and to be able to connect with love and patience and kindness and 
be more conscious of those, the importance of them. You know, you can't be a healthy human being if you're not connected to all your emotions. Shutting them down is a great tool when you're in war or in a crisis, but it's not a very healthy tool around your family or teammates. Did you learn that concept on your own, or did you end up going to therapy or seeking professional help? I did not uh, seek professional help. Now, it does help that my wife is a therapist. She's a licensed counselor. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so the one area, we're, we're light years apart in personality, okay? We're opposites do attract. But the one area where we really overlap are our values about politics, religion, and money are all the same. But she and her professional counseling uh, overlaps a lot with what I do in professional coaching. Now, I don't get into counseling, but the two edges come together. And so psychology has always been something I've been interested in. And I do have a master's in counseling and human development. So that area, we overlap. And so we can have conversations. And I'm sure that's helped. And, and I read a lot. You know, I wasn't a reader growing up, but I became a reader as an adult. So I read a lot of books. And I find books another way to help me process my fear, my anger, my pain, my, my grieving, books, movies. A lot of times somebody else's story helps me connect with my story and helps me to process that. Mm. Yeah. And then the final question is, what would you suggest to service members struggling with tough situations at this moment? Number one, never fight alone. Navy SEALs, Special Forces, fighter pilots, we never fight alone. So don't try to take on life by yourself. And when you're especially facing challenges, identify people that are wise, that care about you, that you can trust and move toward them and share with them. Don't be too proud to be vulnerable. Uh, sometimes being vulnerable is the most courageous thing you can do. Yeah. So one, stay connected. Number two is believe in yourself. You've been through stuff before. You can get through stuff in the future. And I think three is just keep on keeping on. Do your duty and believe that tomorrow, you got to believe. You know, Henry Ford said, whether you believe you can or you can't, you're probably right. So you got to believe. You got to believe in yourself. You got to believe you can work through it and manage yourself to stay true to your values and to be the kind of person that you know you ought to be and just work through it. And you'll probably be okay as long as you're not alone. Okay. These are, these are great suggestions. Thank you so much. It was truly an honor to interview you and great, great, great answers. Just wonderful um, hearing what, what you have to say about dealing with struggles and developing grit. Um, is there something that I'm not asking you? Well, I think one other thing, and you can put this in or not, I think faith is important. Everybody has different kinds of faith. Faith Sometimes knowing that there's something more powerful than you, there's something bigger than you mm. that has your interest at heart and that is in control, because sometimes we feel out of control. I think that's very important. As going back to what we said earlier, I felt like God had a purpose for me, and my job was to do my part. And I think that gave me a lot of strength in a very difficult situation in that I didn't have to control everything for everything to come out okay in the end. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's that's so true. Yeah, just to have some type of higher purpose, mm -hmm. high meaning, right. yeah, yeah. 
This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and grit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical or psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's anna.v.fedotova.mil at mail.mil.